Hi, and welcome to the Writers Forum. Today, I'll be speaking with two people, the first of which is New Orleans poet Elizabeth Gross, who just released her first collection entitled This Body, That Lightning Show. Take a listen. Hey, Elizabeth, how's it going today? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. It's a Monday. Um, to kind of get us going, you have this book, This Body, That Lightning Show, that's recently come to light after a long time. And I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how you began putting these poems together. Yeah, This Body, That Lightning Show began as my MFA thesis back in 2011 when I was living in New York. And I was really surprised that post-Katrina New Orleans ended up being the through line and the kind of starting point for a narrative arc for what became the book. I didn't set out to write those poems. I didn't think that I ever would. But but that's what happened. And yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> feels like also. Um, so I guess, I mean, like before that came together, um, it was a collection of um, the poems that I was still interested in that I had written in my MFA program and before. But the narrative arc pulled it together into a book that yeah. I continued to work on after graduating. I can see. Does it feel like a time capsule? Uh, yes and no. I had to go back in, in working with my editor, which I was really grateful for because before the book was accepted for publication, I hadn't been able to make any changes since um, summer 2013. So between 2013 and summer 2018, <laughs> just, I just, I would read it like once a year and I still believed in it. Yeah. And then I would send it out ever more selectively. But between the manuscript that I submitted and uh, the book now as a physical object available in the world, there were some significant changes. What were some of those? Because I'm really interested because you've had it for such a long time and, you know, finding the narrative threads. Like what was, and re-looking at this for like a publication standpoint, what were some of the things that you're like, oh, let's maybe revise this thing right here? Yeah, some of it was actually pulling poems back in that I had previously cut and reworking them. And I guess that happened in part because it felt like, it's like, well, last call, <laughs> last call for anything like this, any of the poems that I've ever thought about that are related to this set of concerns and these aesthetic choices as well, formal choices. So, so some of that, um, I got some really helpful suggestions from my editor. A lot of reordering came from that as well, which, I mean, I guess it's the kind of thing, like, it feels really significant to me. It feels like significant changes, yeah. but really I'm talking about revisions on, like, four or five poems. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so cool. You know, because my familiarity with your work stems from a lot of Mr. Chance and your work with Erasure and these kind of multi-layered multi textured things where you're doing a lot and kind of balancing a lot. And these are a lot more um, traditionally formatted. Mm -hmm. um, is it kind of strange for you to kind of be looking back at this and be like, that's what I was writing into and now I've like kind of blown that up in so many ways? Yeah, actually, I feel differently about it since the poetry festival, yeah. since I was on that panel, the uh, post-apocalyptic polyvocality, where all of these movements towards experimentation that I thought about as new, 
I see connections to what I was doing in this Body That Lightning show as well, particularly the polyvocality itself in, in terms of the... This Body That Lightning show is a narrative, loosely, somewhat fragmentary. It's mostly about me or from my point of view moving through the world after Katrina. And then in the middle of the book, there's a tiny epic about Amazon women warriors in seven voices. <laughs> so that, I mean, it's weird. I feel like every time I'm reaching towards experiment, I'm also reaching towards something very old. Yeah. And the Amazon Amaki is another example of that. But this idea of including multiple voices or uh, needing to include multiple voices in the work um, is definitely in this book as well. Yeah, and I think that that's really interesting that you said about uh, the more experimental kind of going backwards in time and kind of reaching for these things. And I know you, we've talked before about uh, this classical background, right? In, in uh, Greek and Latin, certain texts right there of poetry and also plays. It's really interesting to me, and I was talking to Brad Richard about this as well, uh, that some of these tomes that we hold in high esteem, they were kind of, that if you read this thing, you're of a certain... Um, eclectic type uh, in the early 20th century or our 19th century. But if you keep on looking at them, there's so many weird things going on in those texts that speak more to our experimental poetry today and more of our um, more experimental narratives going on. So I think it's cool that you're able to find that there. Yeah, I. it's so sad to me that the study of ancient Greek literature often referred to as classics, gets rolled into this kind of white supremacist sense of origin for Western society. Because I think in a lot, of, I mean, they had a lot of problems. I don't think there's any need to idealize the those authors or those texts coming out of another failed experiment in democracy yeah. a long time ago. <laughs> but in some ways, they were so much more radical than we are now in both uh, artistically and politically. So, yeah, it's just the Greeks for me. I don't, I don't, I don't do any, any Roman Latin things. Yeah. I don't, I don't bother with that. But yeah, whenever, when, I, when you're reading ancient Greek texts in translation, most of the time it does feel dead and formal and fixed. But if you have the opportunity to read it in the Greek, it doesn't feel that way at all. Yeah, um, It's wild and strange. And yeah, it still speaks to me all the time. In this body of that lightning show, I also have my irresponsible translations from Sappho running, mm -hmm. running all the way through. So, which is on the one hand, another connection to the ancient world there, but also... I feel like there's a through line from that work to the work of Mr. Chance, where translating Sappho is another kind of erasure, except the hand of history is doing the erasure instead of me. I'm filling it back in a little bit. That's, yeah, that, that, that's really interesting because, you know, you have Ann Carson's really interesting translation of the Sappho and kind of reintroducing that work in a way that had never been seen before, or hadn't been seen outside of the, the Greek or fragmentary understanding of that. Um, that. That's cool that you're getting to play with that and, and introduce that. Yeah, and if the publication of If Not Winter, uh, which came out while I was studying Greek literature in college, that, I mean, that was huge for me. That was, that was what made me want to read Greek in yeah. the first place. 
Um, I was immediately obsessed uh, with all of the blank space that was left on the page. And yeah, actually, I remember going to talk to my professor for the Greek tragedy class that I was taking in translation. I hadn't studied any Greek before, and I just showed up at her office hours. I was like, I really need to know what this sounds like. Can you teach me how to say this out loud? I just need it for myself. (laughs) And um, from there, she eventually convinced me to study Greek. But that was surprising to me. What, What I knew was I was completely gripped by what remained from Sappho and transfixed by the sounds when I heard other people read Greek out loud and actually learned to pronounce some things uh, for performance before I started studying the language properly. Yeah. To the extent that I ever studied the language properly. Has there been any sort of like transference of the kind of audible or like poetic underpinnings from the Greek that you've incorporated into your own thinking when like performing your work aloud? Yeah, I hope so. It's hard for me to reconstruct all of it now because I translated these fragments so long ago. Yeah. But but in my process when I was doing that work, I would I would kind of sing them to myself as best I, as I was able yeah. and start from there. And and so part of what's irresponsible about the translations is that they're starting from sound sometimes. And then the other part is that I'm translating sometimes single letters into words. I would just find the list of like that page in the dictionary and pick what I wanted Yeah, from a single letter that's of cool. a word. <laughs> I think that's awesome. <laughs> and it's got to be, that must have been so much fun for you to kind of experiment with that. I, I love that. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I should go back to that sometime. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's a good kind of, you know, uh, framework for approaching things. Well, Elizabeth, we've been talking about the book. I'd love if you could share a poem from it. Okay. So this, This poem, Antelopes of Thera, that I'd like to read, um, actually begins with the epigraph of the fragment of Sappho, that first one that I asked my teacher. Can you tell me how to say this? (laughs) Um, So Antelopes of Thera is after the fresco of Akrotiri Thera from the 16th century BCE. And the epigraph is Teoisin of Thalmosin which means with what eyes, and it's a question, as Ann Carson translated it. One, Atlantis or not, accident in the form of a goat discovered the city. Famous, unlucky, the goat fell through centuries and centuries of volcanic ash. Archaeologists followed in awe. Did the goat survive? Do goats have the kinds of eyes that see color? Two, The only way to make something last is to forget about it for a long, long time. Three, we just bought a copy of the ancient fresco, a birthday present for my father on a lark. The red-orange sky rides heavy on white mountains winding just over the antelope's laughing heads, hung up in the room days before mandatory evacuation. That sky, the only solid shape, should we take it with us, along with the insurance papers, the family's photos? No. Leave it on the wall. That one must be my voice. My family didn't know the story, what they survived, painted animals accustomed to loss. Four, 21.5 hours to Dallas, stopped in our car in the endless line of people waiting to run for their lives. Five, before Akrotiri spewed into the sea, 
The, the citizens packed up their jewelry or whatever and fled their painted halls. If they died in their ships, no one knows about it. Six, then flood, then return, drive to understand what happened here, but keep the windows up. No one should breathe this. Twisted trees choked by salt water and muck, holding up the unexpected. Chairs, boats, cars, the sky is the limit. Tiny pyramids of mold and dust piled up on all our picture frames, not one of them crooked. A hole in the ceiling of my parents' house, the approximate size of a coffin. Me underneath thinking, lucky, 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 looking clear up to the blue plastic tarp and the light shining through. Seven. The strong black marks around the antelope's painted eyes took everything in, as tree bark darkens after rain, gathering depth, or as the eyes of a living deer recede wetly from this world into other, quieter worlds, caught by surprise just after sundown, which belongs to them. Eight. When I ran away to the archaeological museum on a one-way ticket to Athens, I met those antelopes' original eyes at the top of the stairs, I wasn't expecting them, didn't know they'd been transported from what was left of their island. Wherever they stand, they guard the house, shadowless, holding up the walls. I stood under their gaze for a long time, except there was no time. Everything was protected. That was really beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. Talking about the book and kind of Hurricane Katrina and, and that narrative kind of being the propelling our uh, running force behind uh, a lot of the poems in there. You know, things kind of reached the pitch with the 10-year anniversary, and, and we're removed from that a little bit. And I think that's a tragedy that will be with our generation for, for the, the rest of our, our lives in some way. But but kind of returning back to that for this book, you know, I guess has it been 15, 14 years, 15 years removed? Yeah. What was it like kind of working with these poems outside of that, outside of the 10-year anniversary, having almost, you know, getting towards two decades of space between that now and that event? Yeah, well, I mean, the book was done before the 10-year yeah. anniversary. It was, I was working on it in the five year, five years after. It has felt like a relief um, to have that moment pass because... And I, I think here we we feel we feel it every year. I mean, we feel it all the time. But we, I think, August twenty ninth still gets marked here every year. Yeah. And I don't think that I don't think that that's gonna go away. No, or, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> at, at any at any point. But I had all kinds of ideas about what I would do to mark the ten year anniversary for myself. Actually, I, I had planned to get a tattoo of those antelopes. Really? From the poem. Yeah. And then there was so much going on and there was no escape from the memorial and people were finding strange new ways to make money off of it around the 10-year anniversary. Yeah. And I just ended up like spending the whole month like underwater <laughs> at the bottom of a swimming pool yeah. and didn't do anything much in public. I think I went to one poetry reading that was like an like an open mic for people who were here that was good and healing. Yeah. But I think that was the only thing that I actually did to mark the 10-year anniversary. I'm still thinking about the tattoo, but I mean, 
I, I can also just think about it and not do it. It's true. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's its own sort of comfort right there, this mental exercise going there. Yeah. But I, I think that that's interesting. Um, yeah, I just, I, I remember, have memories of just... Um, reading the New Yorker and that, that issue in Malcolm Gladwell for some reason is writing about the hurricane in New Orleans is like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's fine, but like, does he really need to write this thing? You know, thankfully I missed that. That's a good thing. Don't, don't return to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, to kind of pivot a little bit, I know you've got some upcoming events associated with this book. What you got going on? Yeah, actually, I just picked up another reading on Saturday, May 11th nice. at the Dragonfly. Okay. It's for, I'm reading with Claire Welsh, and um, her photographs are up. It's the closing uh, celebration for that show. So that's at 8 p.m. at the Dragonfly, Saturday, May 11th. And then I'm having a book party at Staple Goods on Tuesday, May 14th. And one thing I'm hoping to do there, I haven't just started recruiting people, is to do a full polyvocal performance of the Amazonomachy. Nice. In seven voices. I'm hoping yeah. I can get people on board to do that. <laughs> Fingers crossed on that one. Yeah. Um, but uh, one thing that's exciting about the event Tuesday is um, the, the show that's up at Stable Goods is Nora Lovell's paintings. Mm. And Nora Lovell is also the artist who did the cover for my book. Oh, cool. So it's bringing our work together and in conversation because her amazing paintings will be up in the room. Oh, nice. That's really cool. I, I know people can't, can't see it over the radio, but uh, it's a really beautiful cover. Um, that, that's going to be something to behold then. Um, well, Elizabeth, to, to kind of wrap us on up, I am really interested to know what you're reading right now, actually. Oh. I actually, I actually have some answers this time. Nice. I like answers. Um, okay. So for poetry, yeah. um, I've been reading my friend's book, Two Hunters. It's by Marina Blitstein. I've been reading it as slowly as possible because I just want to live in it. Just really new take on feminist poetry. I feel, and also like combining that with refugee experience in the U.S. And then the other book that I'm reading that's poetry is Joss Charles's Field, uh, which I had the great pleasure of hearing her read from at AWP. Also on my shelf right now is Brad Richard's Parasite Kingdom, obviously, <laughs> and I just got a book out from the library for research for a course that I'm teaching in the fall that's called Dark Ecology. And at this moment, the author ex escapes me, but I'm excited about that oh, as well. Cool. That's interesting. It's a good, you know, portfolio right there. One thing I did forget to ask before before we go, I know there's another manuscript that you brought with you, Mr. Chance. I'm wondering if you have any updates on that. Mr. Chance is done. Yes, yay! Um, yeah, it's come a long way. Yeah. yeah, I'm just, I'm sending it out everywhere I can right now. And yeah, the antelopes make an appearance in Mr. Chance as well. It's true, and I, I, um, I know you had mentioned this before we started, but I'd love if you could share that antelope poem as well. I'd be glad to. Before Thessaloniki, before Athens, my brother and I spent one day and one night on Santorini. He wanted to walk the ridge of the volcano between the two towns. 
I wanted to see the ruins of Akrachiri, but I said it didn't matter. I could go another time, even if I had dreamed about that place 15 years already. On the ferry to the island, I told him I'd had a change of heart, that he didn't have to come, but I had to see the ruins. Before the volcano blew, redrew the map, the people of Akrotiri packed their things into ships and skipped town. They knew something was coming and did what they could to survive. Of course, some things got left behind. A child's toy bull or a religious offering. Difficult to say. It's been thousands of years, but I think of the citizens leaping into the unknown every time I evacuate or ready the house for another storm. In the ruins, everything is the same dust color, like after a war, but there are little signs now that show where the frescoes were found. This wall, now half collapsed, used to hold the gazes of some painted animals I know, some antelopes and sparrows in bright colors. Just imagining them, I feel strong and witnessed, standing where they stood not quite touching the floor. Later, walking the rim of the volcano, the sparrows dart and dive into their evening ritual around our heads. There is a moment when they launch straight up into the air. The markings on their wings line up exactly with the famous paintings I'd always thought were so stylized. But no, that was another mistake I made by looking at something from too far away. I spend my last day in Athens at the Archaeological Museum, telling the painted antelopes they pulled out of those ruins everything I know about everywhere I've had to leave behind. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Thank you. That was New Orleans poet Elizabeth Gross speaking about her latest release, This Body, That Lightning Show. One thing we forgot to include in this interview was that the second edition of her chapbook, Dear Escape Artist, will be released sometime in the next couple of months from Antenna. So be on the lookout for that.